Welcome to ID the Future, a podcast about intelligent design and evolution. Welcome to ID the Future. This is Sarah Chaffee. I'm excited to welcome to today's podcast, the research coordinator for Discovery Institute Center for Science and Culture, Dr. Brian Miller. He holds a Bachelor of Science in Physics with a minor in Engineering from MIT and a PhD in Physics from Duke University. He is a technical consultant for IdeaShares, a virtual incubator dedicated to bringing innovation to the marketplace. Welcome, Dr. Miller. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. The focus of our conversation today is a stimulating piece that he recently wrote for Evolution News. The title, The Intelligent Design Underground and Other Reflections. Brian, we'll get to the underground of your title in a moment, but you start out with a brief recounting of how you got into the ID movement and some of the angst you experienced in that early period. Tell us about it. Well, sure. When I was a freshman in college, I had read a book called The Blind Watchmaker by Richard Dawkins. And he basically argued that we see design in nature, but it's all an illusion, that we're simply a product of the blind forces of nature. And at the time, it really uh, struck me because the question was, am I here because of a creator? Am I here for a purpose? Or am I simply here as a product of nature and accident? So that led me into reading books. Like, for instance, the first one I read was Michael Denton's book, The Evolution of Theory and Crisis. And I was really impressed by the arguments, and I started to really research these concepts. But I, I noticed that people that critiqued his book often were ignoring his strongest arguments. And what happened is I read other ID books over the next several years, like Michael Behe, Johnson, Meyer, and I recognized that as their arguments grew stronger, the misrepresentations and the attacks against them also increased. So that gave me this angst that I wanted to help to present the truth to the public because I knew there was a lot of uh, misleading voices out there. Then through what you would term serendipitous, perhaps even providential events, you were hired by Discovery Institute to serve as the CSC's research coordinator. And one of your first tasks was to attend the Royal Society meeting on new trends in evolutionary theory. And it was here that you experienced a bit of whiplash, you might say. You'd been witnessing pro-evolution ID critics viciously misrepresent intelligent design for years. But then you encountered a very different kind of evolutionist at this meeting. And it was someone who organized the conference. Tell us about it. Yeah, certainly. Uh, One of the first talks that was at this conference was by one of the organizers. And uh, during his talk, he basically said, that uh, evolution works very well to explain small-scale changes in biology, but it can't explain major transformations. And it was really an amazing uh, statement he made. My jaw almost dropped, but that was sort of the uh, nature of the whole conference. A lot of people came together recognizing that the standard model had a lot of problems. It didn't explain the deepest problems, Uh, yet they weren't actually willing to consider design, but they were willing to honestly evaluate the state of the science. So a different picture than you got in college. Yeah, quite a bit different. So even many committed evolutionists, opponents of design, are recognizing serious problems. And you list three in your article. You call them tottering pillars. Let's take one at a time. What's the first? 
Well, the first issue is the uh, what is called the rarity of proteins. And Doug Axe, uh, he wrote his book, Undeniable. And uh, he talked about how when you look at proteins, which are the basic building blocks of cells, uh, one of the most major ba- building blocks, and he found that these proteins, which are composed of chains of amino acids, are extremely rare. So if you were to put, let's say, uh, a lot of random a lot of amino acids in a random order, the chances of them forming a functional protein are very small. And his was just one piece of research that was very consistent with previous research on proteins. Now, he basically stated that because these proteins are so rare, that creates an enormous problem for evolution. Because for evolution to produce anything new, you're often going to need new proteins. Well, many critics naturally attacked his research, and their criticisms would often represent misunderstandings of the basic literature or misunderstandings of what he actually did. So he's very effectively argued against those critiques. But there's been a lot of other studies over the last several years that have reaffirmed his basic conclusions. Uh, For instance, there was a study out of Harvard that showed the uh, time required to produce a new protein scales exponentially with the size of that protein, or sequences as he would call them. Uh, But perhaps the most significant research was done by Ann Gager, because she showed that this enzyme called nylonase actually did not come about through a random sequence, which was often claimed, because many people said that there was basically this random sequence of DNA, it went through what's called a frame shift mutation, and the nylonase appeared out of nowhere. And naturally, that claim would seriously challenge Axe's research, but in fact, it wasn't true. The nylonase uh, came about by a simple adjustment to a pre-existing enzyme. So what's happened is over the years, Axe's conclusion that proteins are extremely rare have been reaffirmed. Sounds like the scientific evidence is, is just getting stronger there. How about that second tottering pillar? Well, perhaps one of the strongest arguments people would make for evolution is they'd say that you look in nature and you see a lot of similarities similarities in protein sequences, similarities in traits, similarities in embryology, and so forth. So the idea is that these similarities prove that these different organisms evolve from a common ancestor through a gradual process. Well, the problem is, uh, for many years, people have been looking at the pattern of similarities, and what they found is that the similarities are not consistent with an evolutionary picture. Uh, Specifically, if you were to take, let's say, a lot of different species, you try to create an evolutionary tree based on their similarities, what you'd find is many, many similarities don't fit. So you have species that are believed to be very distant that have striking similarities and species that are very similar that have a lot of differences. And a a paper came out by uh, Winston Ewart in Biocomplexity that showed that the pattern of similarities doesn't fit uh, the evolutionary tree as well as that of, let's say, a computer science expert using common design modules for common purposes in different programs. And the whole issue of whether uh, a computer program is the best analogy or other types of engineering is not the point. The key issue is that the similarities do not fit a Darwinian model, but they instead look like a designer using similarities for common goals. That's That's a pretty striking finding. Yes. How about this third tottering pillar? Okay, and this is, a, this is perhaps the most recent. Uh, there's a book coming out by uh, Michael Behe 
And he's talking about these uh, very detailed studies on the genetics of various groups of organisms, like uh, the finches on the Galapagos Islands or Lenski's experiments on bacteria or cichlid fishes. And what these genetic experiments are showing is that most evolution taking place results from a gene being broken or degraded. So what happens is even beneficial changes are the result of the loss of information, not the gain of information. In fact, even new functional traits that do appear are the result of trivial adjustments to existing traits. Like, for instance, in the cichlid fish, there is a, a particular protein that went through a single mutation that allowed the fish to see better a certain wavelength of light at greater depths. But it was only one mutation. So Michael Behe has shown in his book that the bulk of evidence demonstrates that evolution can only create trivial changes at the level of species or genuses, it can't create large-scale changes at the level of families or higher. So these are three of the tottering pillars, and what you found is that even some fairly mainstream evolutionists have acknowledged some of this stuff. But then you pivot to some of the positive work going on in the intelligent design movement itself. Uh, yes. So what's happening is uh, we're supporting a lot of research around the globe to basically look at uh, things like genetics, things like the fossil record. And what our researchers are doing is applying design intuition to their research. And that has helped them to ask very good questions and to promote good research, which is creating very helpful discoveries for the entire scientific academy. And they're starting to publish their research in mainstream journals, very prestigious journals. And naturally, they're not directly connecting their work to intelligent design to avoid the backlash. But nevertheless, they're supporting the evidence for design pretty significantly. Do you find that most of our critics are at least willing to engage with this emerging evidence and arguments thoughtfully? Uh, unfortunately, that is not always the case. What happens is when people encounter this evidence, both challenging the traditional evolutionary view and supporting intelligent design, they often will simply respond with sound bites, like you're appealing to God of the gaps, or they'll accuse us as being religiously motivated purely, or some other argument like that. They're, they're often not honestly looking at what the evidence actually says. Also, what happens, they'll often refer to certain research studies, which don't directly address the questions we're addressing. So it's a little bit of a bait and switch. So unfortunately, many people are, are not honestly evaluating the research. They're more often ignoring it. Hmm. Okay. We promised we'd talk about the underground. Obviously, we can't name names. But could you tell us a little bit more about the intelligent design underground? Uh, certainly. What happens, again, is we have our own researchers that we support and uh, dialogue with and, and come together with in conferences but in addition to them, there is a lot of uh, scientists that are reading our material and becoming convinced by it, even if, let's say, they are philosophically unwilling to even consider the possibility of design, they still recognize the strength of the arguments, and they realize that we're honestly dealing with a lot of the evidence more accurately than a lot of their colleagues. In fact, I've been at meetings where there's been people there that, again, are completely closed to the idea of design philosophically, but nevertheless, they, they grow tired of seeing their colleagues misrepresent the science to the public. Now, I'll, I don't believe their colleagues are deliberately trying to misrepresent the science. I think that they're just uh, blinded by certain philosophical assumptions. 
and also a lot of these uh, a lot of these people that are coming to dialogue with us are really upset about the fact that our work is being so widely misrepresented. So I, our ideas are spreading pretty dramatically. In fact, uh, one of our researchers was a was a postdoc at Harvard, so he had his PhD, and he said about the quarter of the postdocs he encountered were at least sympathetic to the design arguments, yet none was willing to publicly represent their support because that would create a lot of strong backlash. For instance, Gunter Beckley is an example of someone who publicly supported us. And as soon as he did, despite the fact he was a world-class paleontologist, he was asked to leave his position at the museum. So the, the opposition is strong, but the message is getting out there. So is this cause for discouragement or encouragement? You're a pretty half-full glass kind of person, so I'm guessing I know the answer. Well, if you're hoping that everything will change in the next two years, if you expect the Academy to completely embrace us, if you expect the news to accurately present the evidence and our arguments, then you might be disappointed if you want very quick results. But from a historical perspective, as you look at major shifts of thinking take place through history, like going from the geocentric view to the heliocentric view or looking at the rise of plate tectonics, our progress is pretty much on course from historical perspective. So I'm very encouraged about where we're headed. And I think maybe even within our lifetime, we'll see some massive changes. Wow. So thank you so much for coming on today and sharing with us more about uh, your background and the future of the intelligent design movement and research. Thank you, Sarah. It's been a pleasure. This has been ID the Future. Thank you for listening. Most of us take the sunrise for granted, but not scientist Michael Denton. The more he learns about sunlight, the more he stands in awe of it. He reveals why in his newest book, Children of Light, the astonishing properties of sunlight that make us possible. There he explores the many astonishing coincidences of how sun and air are fine-tuned for creatures like us. As he puts it, altogether these coincidences convey an overwhelming impression of design. Get the book at Amazon now, in paperback or Kindle. Just search for Children of Light Denton. That's Children of Light Denton. This program was recorded by Discovery Institute's Center for Science and Culture. ID the Future is copyright Discovery Institute. For more information, visit intelligentdesign.org and idthefuture.com.